You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of replaceable blade knives, fixed blade knives, and game processing kits. Now, we've all been there before, trying to field dress your wild game with a dull knife. This is where Outdoor Edge really steps in. With the razor-safe system, you can have a brand new razor-sharp blade with just the push of a button. No more dull blades and no more problems processing your wild game. To check out all of the products from Outdoor Edge, visit OutdoorEdge.com. And at checkout, enter the discount code NATION30. That's N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off of your purchase. All right, on the podcast today, I have Todd Havel, and he is just a wealth of knowledge. I've been following his posts either through his Facebook page or even on like the Hunting Beast forums. He's had a lot of good threads over the years. Just a lot of information, a lot of experience hunting bucks, especially in bigger woods areas. And Todd is also one of those guys who does tracking, similar to what you might hear about guys doing more in the Northeast, but he does it in the upper Midwest. There's not a ton of guys that I know of that really have uh, the level of experience that he has in the upper Midwest tracking bucks like that. And certainly there's a lot of information that can be gained uh, so I'm really looking forward to picking Todd's brain, both on some of the things that he's learned and observed over the years on big woods deer and tracking and, and how things might relate between rifle hunting versus bow hunting and just diving in deep on a, a couple of particular topics. Now, this episode did get a little bit long, so I broke it up into two parts. In this first part, we discuss some of Todd's hunting experience as it relates to tracking and some of the things he's picked up on over the years from how a big buck does things differently than other deer, what constitutes a big buck in terms of track size, which could be regionally dependent, what he does when there's no good snow to track on, habitat or terrain features that deer will use, their pattern ability year after year, and even specific tracking skill sets. Before we jump in, I'll give you guys a quick update from Spartan Forge. For those unfamiliar, it's a deer movement prediction algorithm that's based on machine learning technology from deer collared studies across the country. That means it's able to determine what the general deer is doing in various weather conditions or time of year and not be region specific. Deer respond to different stimuli differently based on what they need to survive. In this episode, we talk about deer in the far northern portion of the Midwest. And that climate dictates that the rut timing and other factors related to temperatures or snowfall 
could impact their movements differently than deer in a warmer climate, for instance. For a specific deer that might be patternable year after year, timing a known good historical time frame with a good prediction day to make your move can just help push the odds a little bit more in your favor. An app version will be released closer toward the hunting season, along with additional weather and journaling features. That'll come with a price jump, but for those who've joined before then, your price won't change. And you can use the code DIY for additional discount. Uh, thanks, Todd, for, for taking the, the time tonight. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So remind me, you is it kind of a split between Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Michigan? You, you hunt, you have hunted, or I guess still continue to hunt all three of those states, or is it more certain ones than others? Yeah, I'm from Wisconsin, so I started in Wisconsin, but I've been tracking in uh, Minnesota for many, many years, and and the UP and Michigan as well. And I did uh, venture to Ontario two years ago. Last year, they closed the border with the COVID, so um, I wanted to return in the worst way. But so I've got one year of Canada, uh, Ontario under my belt as well. Okay. Do you have a particular favorite out of those states, or is it just kind of it's all all enjoyable in its own way? I would say any any state where there's not baiting, any any situation where there's not baiting, uh, baiting really throws a, a wrench into into tracking. So um, I enjoy tracking a lot more in in areas where baiting isn't allowed. Is it just that when you have multiple bait piles around, the deer kind of just jump from one bait pile to the next, or do you have more confrontations of the guys that are sitting in stands hunting over bait piles that you inevitably run into? What what kind of things do you see when you're hunting in areas that allow baiting? Well, the, the problem with baiting is that it changes the whole dynamics of how how the bucks approach the rut. Um, they they mostly almost always move at night because they want to go to the baits. Um, in in the old days, it was doe group to doe group to doe group, you know, hitting those. Uh, uh, major scrapes, uh, you know, in those dole group areas and, and scent checking and moving on to the next. Well, now when you throw bait into the, the scheme, you're drawing all the does into one spot. So what happens is these bucks are smart and they've adapted to that. So they go from bait to bait to bait, just scent checking for hot does. So, um, which isn't an issue, uh, so much, but, as much as the does all congregate and track up the whole area and they pound over the top of the buck's tracks all night long. And then when you try to sort it out, it, it becomes very difficult. Plus um, hunters are territorial. And if you come into a guy's bait area and you're trying to sort it out a track, it's, it's, it, it doesn't go real good. Yeah. I can imagine. <laughs> it lightly. So, so I, for those reasons, it, it's a, you know, you can spend a half hour, you can spend an hour in an area um, trying to sort of that buck track coming out of there, uh, depending on how many does have pounded the area down and so forth. I mean, you, all it takes is one buck to, that buck to leave that area and one doe to follow that track and step in his tracks and, and, and go a quarter mile like that following that same trail. And good luck trying to find him, trying to, you know, I mean, his track is stopped out. So it, it makes it very difficult. It's not impossible to do. Um, I killed a lot of bucks tracking in areas where there's baiting allowed, but it makes it a lot more difficult. There's a lot more, um, there's a lot more to it. So I, I prefer the, the natural hunt where the deer are just moving naturally and, um, and actually 
areas where there's less deer density is better too. Because less tracks, the less tracks you get goofed up on. Yeah, that makes sense. And each area offers different things. I can't really say like Minnesota is better than Wisconsin because of the terrain or whatever, because each area, it, it changes. I mean, every area has got um, good, good points and every area has got bad points. So is, I guess bottom line is if, if I got good tracking snow and, and uh, you know, clear woods to, to go on, I'll track them anywhere. Okay. Well, in Wisconsin's gun seasons, usually later than Minnesota's, I don't, I'm not too familiar with upper Michigan, but, I would imagine that you're probably more likely to get snow in upper Wisconsin than you would upper Minnesota just on any given year. Is that, is that probably true? Yeah, sometimes yes, sometimes no. I've had pretty good luck over the years getting catching tracking snow up in Minnesota. Um, I go way up by the Boundary Waters area up there, so I'm getting real far north, so a lot of times you do get snow some anyway. But there's been some years where it's been 40, 50 degrees, and, and then you, you, know, you, you, just, you hunt like you normally would hunt then. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose I was going to ask you what, what you did when you didn't have snow. And I guess that, that kind of helps explain it. You're kind of just looking for, I guess, typical rut hunting type locations in that case. Right. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm, I'm very mobile. Um, I do some calling. Um, I'm always searching for hot sign. Uh, I'll check clear cuts and so forth, looking for hot sign. If, uh, when a doe comes in heat on a, on a clear cut or anywhere, when a doe comes in heat, and the bucks start chasing her, um, the trails really show it. I mean, leaves are turned over real hard. Trails that are normally not run all that hard look like cow pads. And um, it only takes, you know, a few deer to run on them to make them look really pounded down. And, and if that sign is really hot, then that's an area I like to spend time. Uh, at bare ground, the whole game at bare ground is, is, in my opinion, is keep moving and keep looking for signs. Just keep going, keep going, keep going. Um, I found in that big woods scenario, I've killed more big bucks on bare ground using that technique than any other. So do you still just kind of still hunt and look for sign and when you, when you find good signs, slow down, or do you, in those scenarios, try to find an area that looks like it's hot right now and maybe even jump a deer or you just, you just know that it's a good area right now and you, will you try to set up, uh, in a tree and, and hunt just stationary? Well, I'm always hunting when I'm, when I'm scouting, you know, in season, I'm, I'm scouting and hunting at the same time. Um, but I put more emphasis on the scouting and less emphasis on the hunt. So I'm moving probably faster than like a still hunting person would, because I would, I want to put on some miles. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, but I'm always watching and listening and, and, you know, and, and, uh, trying to be ready because you just never know. Um, I, I, I guess I'll give you a, an example. I, I had a spot that, that was producing for me pretty good over the years, but it got cold. And, and again, another, that's another key to big woods. If it's, if an area goes cold, get out, just don't get married to a spot, get out. And I, I studied maps one night, looked around and I found a few spots that looked interesting, never hunted them before. I dove in on this one river system and I followed this river system. And there was a series of, of, uh, beaver dams, which I love to hunt, um, checked everything out. There was a buck in the area. I assumed him to be an aggressive three-year-old because he was just ripping everything up. And, and when they kind of first get to be the king of the woods in an area, they kind of really get aggressive like that. It seems like they do more rut sign than any buck 
you know, four or five, six years old, probably won't leave as much sign as a really aggressive three-year-old. It's like a teenage boy, you know, he's, mm-hmm. he's, uh, he thinks he's something else. And, um, that, that whole, that whole river system there, uh, was all tore up and I immediately hunted. I sat down immediately. I, I found a spot between two beaver dams. Uh, I had just sent it up the whole area by walking all over and I didn't care. I sat down immediately and I hunted. I had, I had two and a half days of season left. I hunted the half a day. I went home. I hunted the next full day there. I saw one doe and a fawn cross one of the beaver dams. I went back the third day. And at noon on the last day of season, I grabbed my grunt call out and I blew it five times about as loud as I could without making it sound like a duck call. And I actually laughed and I set my grunt call down on the ground. I was sitting right on a, a log and along the river because it was almost comical as loud as I blew it, you know? Yep. And I looked, I looked to my right at the beaver dam. I looked to my left at the beaver dam and there he was standing on the beaver dam on the left. And I just put the gun up and I, and I squeezed up a shot and I had my three, what I figured to be a three-year-old 10 point buck, a dandy for, you know, uh, for being a three, a three-year-old, it was, he was a dandy. I'm assuming he's a three-year-old and I'm assuming that was probably the buck that was making all that sign up and down the river there. You know, they, they do stick in those areas like that or whatever. And, and, you know, and that's the case where I just got out and I, I scouted sign. I found it. I laid on it and I hunted it. And it panned out for me. Another example, I, I went, I checked a clear cut. I saw a small buck. He almost ran me over. It was almost comical. He, he had his nose down. He was so, so worried about looking for a doe. And he almost ran into me, and I laughed. When he first saw me, he almost came out of his skin trying to get out of the way. And so I immediately hunted it, went back the next day, and I climbed up in a hub area where all these points come together in that clear cut. I got up on a tree about oh, about 15 feet with my sling. Mm-hmm. At 10 o'clock in the morning, I had a, I had, I heard a grunt, and a few minutes later, I had a 10 pointer and, uh, uh, actually it would be a, another, a 10 pointer. He had double split brows, both chasing a doe and they came right by me and I could have shot either one of them. I actually shot the smaller scoring buck because he was the older dominant buck. And I was hoping that maybe the other buck I would get a chance at in, you know, in, the next few years or whatever, maybe pick him up tracking or whatever, but he was a really high ten pointer, but he was younger. Yeah. And you can always tell the, the less dominant one because the dominant one is right with the toe and the other one is skirt and he's trying to catch up. He's always staying off to the side because he don't want to get his butt kicked, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so I ended up getting, I ended up shooting, uh, that one buck. I could have had, if I was group hunting, I could have had two, two trophy deer laying on the ground. And that, that was going into an area I never was in before, scouting it during in-season with the gun in my hand, finding hot sign, and I went back immediately. I saw five bucks that day in there. And sometimes I hunt the whole season up in Minnesota and don't see five bucks. Wow. You know, but that's all, you know, going off of finding that fresh sign and getting on it right away. And you, it's got to be fresh. If it's if it's two days old, 
you're way behind the game, you'll be wasting your time. If you go in there and you sit for a day and you're not seeing anything or any activity, get out and move again because you're too late. You know, a lot of times the guys are reading the sign, but they're right behind it. They're too far behind it. Yeah. And you picked up on two other things when you were describing those locations. And one of them was clear cuts. The other one was beaver dams. And I'm curious when you're going and looking for a place to hunt, because I mean, I mean, let's be honest, there's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres of potential land that you could go to. Are you ahead of time looking at aerial photos and trying to find areas that have a lot of habitat diversity? Or are you more just kind of driving through some of those roads until you find an area that just off the side of the road, like this looks like a good area. I'll, I'll park here and go check it out. I like areas that are, are hard to access, even if, even if it is the big woods. I like, and it usually means water. And deer love water, big bucks love water. Um, if you have huge open hardwood areas, I'm not going to say there aren't big bucks in there, but um, they're a lot easier to kill. So you usually don't get the age structure in those type of areas. Um, and, and or in those open timbered areas with big open hardwoods and everything they're really hard to kill in there too by the way it's kind of weird that you'll chase them out of there but it's hard to kill them because they sit they sit on the next the next hump over down the line you come up over a hump you skyline they see you they slide slide off the back and you don't even know they were there so you walk through these open hardwoods all day long and you never see a deer and you wonder i wonder why i'm not seeing any deer well they're seeing you from 250 yards away and they're sliding off the back and all the while, in your mind, you're thinking, I can see for 250 yards. I, I got good hunting here. I want to hunt here because I can see for 250 yards, you know. But those deer will back off, and, and they just disappear on you. It, it, it's tough hunting. So I like, I like the water. I like swamps. I like river systems around the edges of lakes. Um, you got to remember, too, there's usually feed associated with that. Um, uh, rivers, if you have beaver dams, you've got beavers cutting Stuff, so you got new growth and and that's food for the deer too so they've got everything they need in those scenarios they've got food they've got water they've got cover yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense and, and are you trying to find areas that look like they're harder to get to or are you just you know if you see a lot of land that looks good you just keep walking and keep walking until you get away from other hunter sign yeah just 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 wet areas, and, and you don't really have to go too far to get away from hunter sign. I mean, you get a half a, half a mile back in the big woods, and, and you probably left 95% of the guys behind. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to go too far to get away from people. Um, and, and sometimes the bucks aren't even that far off the road. You know, um, uh, my, mont- my, my mantra this year, uh, I've been doing a lot of videoing and my filming, my um, scouting this, this spring. And what I keep saying over and over again to myself and to the camera as I'm walking is the sign doesn't lie. And that's a big thing. Um, I think it's kind of becoming a lost art with all the GPSs and trail cameras and, and, and trail video cameras. And um, we're starting to lose the, that sense of, of connecting with the woods and what it's telling us. It, 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 the sign doesn't lie. So if you get into a big woods area, and the sign isn't there, then move on. You know, move on. Um, there isn't a big buck everywhere, especially nowadays. 
it's getting harder and harder to find big bucks. Um, so move until you find one. And if you find an area all tore up with big buck sign, it usually means that you have overlapping of a couple of good good bucks in one area, and that's an added bonus. Yeah, if you find if you find an area, then because I've heard and I've seen that too, and in, in my experience last year hunting would definitely tend to agree with that. Um, with the competition just kind of forcing a lot more sign than normal. But if you have an area that just say it has one big mature buck, like he probably doesn't need to lay down as much sign because he doesn't have that level of competition. So is there the chance that you're ever just walking by an area that could hold a big buck because you don't see the very limited sign that he's laying down or, or what do you kind of, what do you kind of look for there? Yes. If I'm bare ground, yeah, no, if I'm bare ground hunting, yeah, there's a, there's a good possibility, but there's other things to watch for too. Um, droppings and, and, uh, um, track size, um, track size is a big thing for me. Um, you know, if I see, if I see, uh, evidence of a big, a big track, um, here's another thing too. Uh, just because you don't see any big rubs this year, if there's historically historical big rubs there, um, there's still a chance, you know, you, mm-hmm. so you got to watch that again, that sign doesn't lie, you know? You get to a softer spot where they cross a, a marsh or something where the, they, they actually leave a nice imprint, you can tell. Another thing, too, you watch, you, you watch in the woods, and this, is all, this all takes years of, of studying and learning this stuff. You watch uh, or you, you see a doe track going across, let's say, open hardwood. She'll walk across there, and she picks the leaves up in a little bit and everything, but then a, a dandy buck, a 200-pound-plus buck, walks across there. He'll sink in. He'll cut in. And you can actually see his individual tracks a lot of times. And, again, you know, if you can read the, that sign, if you can pick up on that stuff, you can see that, hey, that deer is heavier than the normal deer. That's a good deer. Yeah. So you got to you just look for that sign. And, when, and, and hopefully, if you're doing your tracking on the snow, you'll have historical data of, particular bucks in a particular area and you'll know where their home core areas are and you can just go back to those and, and concentrate on those yeah that's a good point is there a certain size gauge that you use to determine it like what's a mature buck or what's you know a giant or what's one you're worth going after if you're tracking in the snow yeah i want i want the biggest track i can find in any given area so if i go to minnesota it's going to be a, a huge track, and I don't measure them. Um, 30 out six uh, shell casing would be about the minimum size on a walking track. If 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 he gets as wide as the entire shell with the with the lead and everything, then he's a real brute. Um, but yeah, but then as you, it's weird because then you go back to northern Wisconsin, um, north. The central like um bayfield uh um ashland county mm-hmm. iron uh those areas in there the, the the good buck there will not have as big of a track as the ones i see up in minnesota and then you go to the up and it gets even harder yet because a really good buck in the up just doesn't seem to have very big tracks hmm. interesting so it, it makes it a little bit more difficult yeah so um you know, when people ask me how big of a track will you follow, I say, well, what's the biggest track in your area? 
you know, um, and that's, and it changes depending on where you are at. Yeah. I guess I, I never thought of that. You always think, you know, down South, the deer are small up North, the bigger, the deer are much bigger body wise, but even I wouldn't have expected that even between like, you know, Northern Minnesota, Northern Wisconsin, there would be that much of a difference, but it sounds like that isn't necessarily the case. There is, there's a huge difference. I don't know why it is, but it, it just is. Did you find that they, that the body size correlates too? like, or the big Minnesota bucks that you find, are they much bigger body wise too, or do they just have a bigger, you know, track print size to body ratio? I think there is something to that because, um, and you know, and then the age structure is getting killed everywhere, which is sad, but yeah, you know, um, back in the day when I first started hunting Minnesota, if there was a buck pool in that area and your buck didn't dress out at 240 or better, you didn't even bother to bring it in because you didn't have a chance to win. Um, in the, in the Wisconsin area that I hunted up North, uh, my average big buck is going to push the scales at about 180. And that's during the rifle season when he's pretty run down after the rut, that mm-hmm. buck would have went over 200 and, you know, before the rut, but, but, um, anymore finding one that's much bigger than that, it gets, is, is tough, you know, and I think that you're right. I think there's a correlation between that. I think if those bucks had an opportunity to get bigger, I think their tracks would get a little bit bigger as well. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. When, when you're, uh, when you're doing your tracking in the snow, are you, are you always trying to find a track on the road? Like I've read about guys doing before taking it up, or are you going to say sometimes like, I'm going to go back into an area that's not on the road, but I think is going to be good and try and pick up a track somewhere in there. I've done both. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be 59 years old this this uh deer season when that deer season comes around so um i'm not young anymore so i do rely on the looking for a track from the road a lot more than i probably should um but if you know areas that that hold good bucks or that could hold good bucks have potential or if you know historically that there's you know like a, a buck from last year is in an area um i get out and i'll go look and and um Maybe we could touch on this a little bit later, but um, if if the buck is still alive from last year, he'll walk on the same exact trails he did the year before. And he'll cross the same spots that he you did the year before. So um, it may be a road crossing that I watch really closely for a certain buck, or I might get out and I walk, might walk a quarter mile or a half mile back in just to a a spot where I know that that buck crosses. And if I pick him up, then I pick him up. If, if he's, you know, and, and if he's not there, he's not there. But, um, I do a lot less walking simply because I don't have a lot of gas in the tank anymore. So I would rather, I would rather save myself for when I do find a track and then get on it, push it with everything I have all day long, you know, instead of wearing, instead of putting three miles on trying to find a track and then hoping that I still got another six miles in my tank to follow them, you know? Right. Well, how far do you find that some of those deer can go when you just pick up a track and start following it? I don't know how far they'll go because I've never been able to follow them that far. Um, I've taken them already six miles 
uh, I took one in Canada. My well, I with my walking out, I had eight miles on that day, and most of it was on the track. Um, I took one up in Minnesota that I ran them straight for six miles, and I ran, I pushed that one hard. It was getting to be last one of the last days of season, and it was a good track, and I pushed them for everything I had in me, and I took him six miles straight away from the truck. He never broke stride, never stopped, never peed or pooped or uh, nothing. He just kept eating up miles. And, and really, if you think about it, if, a, if that buck walks two miles an hour, it only takes him three hours to go six miles. Yeah. And, he, and he's been walking all night. So how far will a buck go? I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me one bit to find out that they go 15 miles a night. It could you know, 12 miles, that wouldn't surprise me at all. And that's mostly during the rut, right? So he's he, he's covering miles regardless. Do you think that, uh, I guess, if you're if you're dialing it back and not hunting quite in the rut when he might be doing some of that, uh, that travel cross-country looking for does, do you think that core area is quite a bit smaller? Or do you think it's still pretty big in some of those big woods areas? I'm sure that I'm sure that he knows when the raspberries are good over here and and when the acorns are good over there and and when the maple leaves are falling and and they're really sweet over here um I I'm sure he knows every food source in that area and I'm sure he shifts around to take advantage of those but I will say that I am pretty darn sure that once a buck gets to be 6 7 years old or older I think they're pretty tight to home. I don't think they move much outside the rut. I, it wouldn't shock me to find out that a seven-year-old buck, when he's on a good food source, never leaves a 40-acre plot. That wouldn't shock me to find that out at all. But once the rut kicks in, then he starts to put on the miles. Okay. Well, that makes it. That makes definitely that style of tracking much more appealing during that time of year especially if we got that snow on the ground because otherwise finding that track in the first place might be a, a tall task well yeah i mean and that's why you find them i mean because they put out so many miles I, here's a here's a cute story i found i found three really nice tracks coming across the same road up in northern minnesota and i looked at all three of them and they were all three very very comparable very comparable and I, thought, I don't know, any meeny miny mo, you know. So I went back and right where I started, I picked up the first one. I parked my truck. I got on the track, and I took it where he crossed the road there. And he went, and he was parallel in the road, and he started going away from the road. And he turned and he came back, and he crossed the road. That was his track again. And I went on the other side of the road following him. And I went down the road about another mile, and he crossed again, and it was the same track again. It was the same <laughs> buck that left all three of those, and I felt like a stupid heel. It was like, you dummy, you should have you should have obviously took the end track, hope or thinking that it could have been him. Um, but, yeah, it was all the same buck all the way, and, and I had put on two miles plus just to get to where I could have just parked my truck and started the track. <laughs> <laughs> But you will find that to be the case. You will find that to be the case. It, you know, whenever I'm tracking a buck and all of a sudden I come across another good buck track, the first thing that crosses my mind now is it's probably him. And most of the time it is. 
Not always, but a lot of the times it is. He, he just makes a big circle in an area, whatever, he'll cross his own track and keep on going again. You know, whatever for whatever reason, maybe he went to check out some does or whatever, and then he, you know, he'll circle around and then he'll cross his track and go. But yeah, if you if you're on a really good track and you run across another really good track, it, you're probably going to come back to it. it. It's probably the same deer. So how do you know which one's the fresher one? Well, you're you're following them. You, you follow them right around. I mean, it's the same track. He just went around. Maybe he made a quarter mile loop or whatever and came back across and kept going. So you just stay on. You know, you just stay. With you just wasted a lot of time, but but that's what you got to do. You got to, you know, if you're going to stay with your deer, you just got to do that. Okay, so you never you never figure that maybe the one you're crossing is, you know, the one you have to switch to in order to, to actually catch up with them quicker? I You know, I stay with my deer if I'm happy with that deer and he's, and, and he's a good deer or whatever, I stick with him. And if it does loop around, which it does often, so be it. Okay. You know? whatever it's only a quarter mile more i'm i'm putting on six miles that day anyway on him so what's the difference you know i mean um it it would have to be a better track for me to change i guess okay you know if i'm happy with the track and i'm happy with the way he moves through the woods that's another thing too i can't put this in words but i can tell you this um when you get on a really good buck an older buck, I would say probably one that's probably six years old, seven years old, maybe older than that. You you get on his track and you'll know it within the probably the first half mile or so. You'll know that this is a really exceptional old buck because just the way he moves through the land, it's different than other bucks. He never, like... There'll be a there'll be a tree laying down in his way. He'll walk around it. He won't even take the energy to jump over it. You know, he'll go around it. He won't. He avoids things that are in his path. Instead, I mean, he probably feels like I do when I see an overhanging branch. And the way my my back hurts me most of the time, I don't want to even bend over. I walk around it. You know, so yeah. I know probably why he does what he does. You know, because he's probably as sore as I am. But you can tell right away. You can tell. He knows exactly where he's going, and that's evident because it's the easiest. I, I always say this, the easiest, safest path. He won't take the easiest path, but he'll take the easiest path that's safe. And he knows how to go through an area with the least resistance and the least amount of energy and the least amount of goofing around. And even his, when the way he walks, is always straightforward with purpose and he doesn't waste energy. And that, when you get on one of those, if you start tracking and you ever get on one of those, you'll think about what I just said. You just, you'll remember this and you say, Oh, I remember Todd saying that, you know, this buck is different. You know, he's moving different, you know, yeah. and, but it's hard to put it into words, but you can tell he's just not wasting any energy whatsoever. And he absolutely knows the area intimately. Well, I was, I was following, I was following one and it was, a, it was his nighttime track. So he went right onto a quad runner track a trail because that's, they go the where it's easy. And he's walking along and all of a sudden he veered to the left and he went uh, into the brush. And I'm thinking that's kind of crazy. Why didn't he just keep going down this quad trail? Because it's such easy walking. Well, I went another, 
I don't know, 20, 30 yards up, and there was a big pond, a puddle there in the road, and there was no way to get around that puddle unless you went into the brush. Well, that tells me that that buck knew about the puddle before he got to the puddle hmm. because he already moved off the road to get around the puddle. You know, and I had to come up to the puddle to know that there was a puddle there, but he knew it was there before he got up to it, and he already had made his move to get around it. You know, and it's those kind of things you pick up on those tracks, and you could tell it that buck really knows that area intimately enough to know that, hey, there's a little puddle coming up, and I'm going to get around it. I'm going to, I'm going to scoot off to the side here where it's easy to go, and I'm going to go around that puddle. You know, it's little things like that that, that key you into knowing that that buck is a, is a brute. Besides the fact that he's got probably the biggest track you're going to follow that season, and he's pushing in really good. You know, he's heavy. Yeah. Yeah, we, we've kind of thought about that quite a bit when we've been doing some of our scouting where we'll just kind of cover some of the landscape and we'll find big buck sign in one spot and we'll find it in another spot. And we'll look at the most obvious, like, pinch point between those two spots. And it's like, well, I mean, he could definitely go through. There's always a trail going on that pinch point. But it's like, I don't know, like, would a big buck be able to walk through this? Like, it's pretty thick. Like, we're, you know, kind of doing that little duck walk where you're you're, you're trying to – you know, part the brush away with your hands. It's like, would a, would a big deer want to do this or would he be walking somewhere else? Maybe he's doing something different than all the rest of the deer. And it seemed like we never find big buck sign in those little, some of those little obvious corridors connecting, you know, two pieces of terrain. He's probably doing something different in those, you know, scenarios, something different than the rest of the deer are doing. He will go through some miserable stuff if it's a really easy connection between where he is and where he wants to get especially if the stuff is thick enough is um if, if the stuff is small enough like under an inch in diameter or whatever that his horns will just push him out of the way you know he can kind of just tip his nose in the air and just kind of push his head right through it mm-hmm. you know if, if it'll kind of part for him he will push through that um he will go through it and i've seen big really mature bucks do that and then I always question that. Why is he doing that? Well, then it becomes very obvious after I see where he's going, because then you look at an aerial after you're done tracking him and you say, well, wow, that it, it, our glass is right down here, that thick brush. And this is the thinnest strip of that thick brush there is in this whole area. And if he goes through right here, instead of going through, you know, a quarter mile of this stuff, he's only got to go through a hundred yards of it, you know, and he, and he learns that. And there, there may not be a good trail there or anything, but he knows that, that if he goes through there, that's his easiest path to get where he needs to get. And he learns that by walking them woods, you know, year after year after year. What are some of the things that they try to avoid? Like wet areas, like, like big beaver ponds or, or, you know, swamps that are just a little bit too boggy and deep. What kind of things do you see them really avoiding? Again, they're going to take the easiest path. They're always going to take the easiest path. If, if there's firm ground, they will. Here, uh, here's a, something I want you to check now. When you, start, when you go back up north and you're driving around, you'll be driving along on a road, and you'll come to a spot where a culvert or a bridge is or whatever, and you'll have, a, you'll have this, this drainage through there. Maybe it'll be a river. Maybe it'll be a small stream. Maybe it'll be just wetlands, and it'll be long and narrow. You'll always see a buck come out to the road, run down the road and then go back into the woods. You'll see his tracks. You'll always see tracks in on those sections of the road, right? Where there's a bridge or a culvert. And what they're doing is, is instead of trying to cross that swamp 
they parallel the swamp out to the road and they use the road like a bridge to get through that swamp and then they go right back into the woods and they go on their way. Huh. So if you, so if you watch in the future now when you when you go when you when you get to these spots where there's culverts and so forth and there's big long stretches of of swamp like that they come out there and they use that road as a bridge and 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 that's where you'll see the deer tracks i i see that all all the time all the time all the time i see um really dandy you know nice buck tracks even doe tracks or whatever they all the deer will do that they all use that road as a bridge to get across if they want to get across that swamp can you imagine what it's like to have those pointy little feet and try to cross that marsh when when we try to walk in it we go up to our knee or up to our waist every step you know Mm -hmm. um it's almost almost a death sentence for them to try to get through there. But they want to get across, and so they learn that. Yeah, that reminds me, too. Hunting North Dakota late season last year, there were definitely deer that were crossing bridges over rivers where they're trying to get just from, like, one woodlot to another. But if they walked across the river, that's kind of, you know, unsafe ice. And so they would literally get out of the woodlot, cross right on the road, over the bridge across the river and then you'd see their tracks going back off into the next woodlot because similar type of scenario i bet yeah yeah well and they're very smart and and that's another interesting point when when things start to ice over and it's just got that light film that light crust of ice on it deer are, are almost you almost can't make them go out on it they know better they know it's 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 a trap mm-hmm. um and I've seen that how many times where you get that to that point in the season where everything is freezing, but it's not frozen enough to walk on it yet. And those deer will come up to that and they'll stop and they'll turn it and they'll parallel it till they can find a place where they can jump across or they can get across another way. Um, they, they won't risk going on that ice, but then a week later there'll be paths going across it because they know they, I don't know how they know, but they all of a sudden they know it's, it's thick enough and they start walking right across the ice then. But there's that little time period right when that ice is isn't strong enough, and, right. they, and they know it's not safe. I wondered about that. You know, I don't do a lot of this swamp hunting, marsh hunting, so much at that time of year. Um, but I just wonder in these if these in these marshes, these swamps, if the bucks don't react the same way when it starts freezing. If they reach a point where where it starts freezing, if they'll actually bed up on higher ground and wait another, you know, a week or two or three days until that ice forms to the point where they can actually walk on it. Because I can see a buck walking through a marsh, but I can't see him walking through a marsh a half a mile to get to an island to bed if he's breaking through a, a you know, like a quarter inch or a, or a half inch of ice every step. Yeah, I can't say I've seen it with, with bigger bucks, but in hunting cattail marshes before, I've definitely seen does at least you know, two, 300 yards easy going through ice. That's, I know when I was walking through it, I'd be busting through just about every step and they'd make a ruckus trying to get through it too. But I think maybe the difference was even when you busted through the ice, the swamp was only, you know, 12 inches deep or whatever. It wasn't one of those big endless, you know, types of swamps. So maybe there were, maybe there's certain scenarios and certain deer where they'll put a, put up with it, especially if the pressure kind of forces them back. But yeah, I definitely, think that makes sense that you know why would they go through all that extra effort because it's that's like the most physical exertion that you can do just about you know it's kind of like walking through deep snow that just has that crust on the top and every time you pop through that little half inch of crust then it seems like you burn twice as many calories i'm sure it's 
probably similar for, for deer walking through those types of things. Right. It's a shock to your body. You don't know when it's going to give, but you know, it's going to give. So you're just bracing for that shock every step. Yep. Do you find that when you're tracking on snow conditions like that, the deer don't cover as many miles? You mean on, when the, when the ice is at that situation, or, or just like if you have a snow that's got a crust on top? Oh, um, I've never really tracked in snow deep enough to stop them from moving. Okay, you know, uh, ten inches, twelve inches, uh, the deer just kind of just do their thing, just like they normally would. It would take an extreme amount of snow to really change their pattern. I mean, a big buck will, will take off with 12 inches of snow on the ground, and he'll make the same rounds just like he will if if there was a no snow. Mm-hmm. I've never seen I've never seen snow deep enough to really stop him from doing that. I guess when it gets to that point, it stops me. You know, <laughs> when it gets past that, so I don't really know what they're doing at that point because it stops me. So I haven't seen a, an amount of snow that that'll stop them. So. There's been times when I've seriously considered getting some snowshoes for uh, for doing some of the the late, or I guess yeah, late winter, early spring tracking before the the snow has really melted. And I've always been curious if if tracking guys ever did did stuff like that to stay on top of the snow a little bit more, or if they're too cumbersome or noisy. I got snowshoes, and I every time I put them on, I end up taking them off, even if it's knee deep, and I have to wade through it. I just I just find it so frustrating. You have to have really good snow conditions for snowshoes to work. What I find out is a lot of times you get this, these deep snows, but they're fluffy and whatever. And every step you take, your snowshoe still buries in, and in it, the snow falls over them. And then you have to lift the snowshoe out with the snow on them and kind of give your foot a shake to take your next step. Otherwise, you've got this mountain of snow on top of every, every step when you mm. pull it back out unless the snow has a crust on it that can't carry you but would with the snowshoes i i don't that's kind of the only scenario where i would think it would work plus i don't know how you would really go through the brush with snowshoes on that would be really difficult yeah you know so i've never i've i've taken snowshoes with me on many 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 hunts um there's many times I've gone a couple hundred yards and taken them off and stood them up in the snow and left them there. So when I come back, I'd pick them up on the way out (laughs) (laughs) and I just go plowing through it. You know, I just make better time. It just, it just goes easier, you know? And like I said, very limited conditions where they would really work. I always wondered if it wouldn't, if they wouldn't be better off in some of these swampy situations where there's just enough consistency to the swamp, where if you put snowshoes on, if you actually stay on top, instead of stinking into every muck every step i think in floating bogs that would definitely work um maybe not quite so well in, in like cattail marshes where you just got those you know narrow muddy trails but there's some areas that i walk over that are probably similar way you're hunting later in the season but when it's still you know early enough that it's not frozen and it's like you're walking on a waterbed and in those types of areas i think snowshoes definitely wouldn't hurt i actually have a a pair of, I don't know what to call them. They're like overshoes kind of, they're called mutters where they're just big plastic contraptions that you strap onto your feet. And when you step down on them in like a soft, a soft ground, the, these little flaps or like tabs on them flare out. And it's kind of like you have big duck feet 
Um, it'll give you a lot more surface area. I've seen, I've, now that you say that, I've seen those things. Yeah. Yeah, they, they work really well for, like, just open, soft, mucky ground. But what they don't really work well yeah. in is if you have, like, grassy areas. So, like, in marshes where you're walking through, you know, grassy areas that are kind of boggy, uh, usually the, the grass kind of prevents those little wings from spreading out. They don't work all that great in that type of terrain like, you, like you'd like you hope and expect. They're supposed to work on snow, too, but I've never tried them. Yeah. I think the bottom line is I think you're almost always, in almost any scenario, better off just with your boots on mm-hmm. and just going. You know, it takes an awful lot of snow. You know, and, and snow is it snow. You give you give me you give me sixteen inches of powder and you walk right through it like it ain't even there. You know? That that fluffy stuff. Yeah. You know, that really it just kind of just whisks out of your way. And and so sixteen inches of snow isn't sixteen inches of snow. Sixteen inches of snow could be so fluffy that you walk right through it and it kinda just poofs out of your way as you go. You know, and the next sixteen might be miserable where you, you, you sink in and it's heavy, you know. Um, so the snow conditions change a lot. So, but like I said, I've never, I've never found an advantage to work, to running snowshoes. I, I wouldn't even try it anymore. I, I would take them. I, I take them on trips sometimes. Cause I'm thinking if I ever get snowed away, way back in, I can walk down the road with them. Okay. You know, that we're in open to come out. Maybe that, that might be an advantage. Um, other than that, I don't, I don't bother you know, I don't even consider them for hunting anymore. Is there a certain snow condition that you wake up in the morning and you go out and you're like, oh, this is great. It's like, this is the perfect snow conditions for tracking. Is it, is it like the fluffy snow? Three, no, three inches of soft, uh, of, of wet snow. Three inches uh-huh. of real wet snow. Interesting. The prints are, prints are absolutely perfect. They're, they're so perfect that you can see that his right, right rear toe on the outside is curled out curled in more than than uh than the left and then you can follow that all day uh, when it gets powdery or whatever everything you know fills back in and you really can't see those fine details those are the days that you just dream for you can get on a track and you can literally run on them all day long you can just go 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 because you don't even hardly have to ever look down at them you can't lose them you know um yeah, that's that. Those are the dream days, and you just don't get a lot of those. Is so when you're when you're following a track, is it kind of that old adage where like the if he starts to wander around a little bit more, it seems like he's going to get ready to start betting. That's when you start to get more alert um, and start to slow down yourself a little bit more. Or when do you know that it's time to start paying a little bit more attention? Um, I. I've read that in the books and I've tried to learn how to do that for what, 12, 15 years already. And I've never been able to learn how to do that. Every time I guess a deer is wandering that he's going to be laying down pretty soon. Um, I'm wrong. And every time I think he's going to go that way because I'm looking at the train ahead of me, he goes the other way. And every time I think he's going to do this, he does that, you know? So I follow the track and I don't try to second guess what he's doing or why he's doing it. Um, the only thing I would say, if you ever run across the scenario where he starts feeding heavy, you know, where he's standing there and pawing and pawing and feeding and feeding and feeding and feeding, chances are he's going to lay down. Um, but you just don't see that. That's pretty darn rare. Um, most of these bucks, I don't even know how they survive. They just don't even bother to eat hardly through the whole rut. 
Uh, they just don't eat. Um, they'll stop and they'll eat some mushrooms. Uh, they'll stop and eat some old man's beard off a tree, that branch that fell down. I've seen them paw a little bit for ferns, but they don't waste much time doing that either. They just move. They keep moving and keep moving. And then if they start meandering, sometimes, a lot of times, it's because something caught their interest. Um, a lot of times, they'll start meandering, and you'll be on red alert. Oh, boy, he's going to lay down. Well, then he, he ends up going 30 yards over, and he's standing right in the dough bed. He smelled that dough bed, so he hooked over there to check it out. For some reason, they like to go right, stand right in that dough bed and smell it, and then they move on. You know, um, so you never know why he's going to meander or whatever. They, they do walk with a purpose and they always, they, and they don't meander very much and they don't feed very much, but just because they meander doesn't mean they're going to go down. Hmm. I had one kind of meander on me a little bit that one day and I took him for a long time and, and he went down into some thicker cover and I'm thinking, okay, there he's, he's in here, you know? So I go on red alert and I'm, I just, you know, I'm all keyed up, you know, and, and I'm poking along really slow and I'm watching for him, you know, and really being cautious and everything. And I, and it takes me probably half hour, 45 minutes to get through there. Well, here, what happened was, is there was a beaver dam down in there and he wanted to use that to cross that area. I had never been through there before. And that was all wet coming up except for one spot where there was a beaver dam and he could cross there really easy. So he cut off his path and he went down into there to, to work his way to get to that beaver dam. And he was probably trying to get himself situated to figuring out exactly where he was or whatever, as he was going through there. So he was meandering a little bit, you know, in and out. And it was in thick brush and everything. And that's probably why he was meandering too, trying to find his way through there the easiest way. But I wasted all that time thinking he was going to lay down because that's what I was taught. And, and he didn't lay down. He, he just kept right on the go, and he just adjusted to get to that beaver dam to cross that beaver dam. And once he got across the beaver dam, he just started taking off straight across country again. You know, so you just don't know why he's going to meander. Um, you don't know. I've had him walking, 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 make a J-hook and lay down. And right out in the wide open, you just, you just scratch your head. Why did he do that? You know, why did he stop here? Why did he lay down here? Well, he just had enough for the, he had enough and he decided he was going to lay down. So he did, you know, and there's no rhyme or reason. Uh, there was no bed there before or nothing. He just decided he got tired and he just laid down. You know, I, I got on one, one buck. He was in wide open hardwoods and I knew he wasn't going to be nowhere near me. I was going to have to really go to catch up with him. So I, I took off jogging after that one. I actually jogged after that one. I thought I'm going to jog all the way through this, this wide open hardwoods. It's probably half a mile long or whatever. I'm just going to jog all the way through it, you know, get through this quick. Cause I know he's not here. And I don't think I went a couple hundred yards. I don't know, 300 yards or whatever. I, I dipped down in the Valley. I come up the other side jogging up and I froze right in my footsteps He's sitting up. He's sitting up there, fifty yards ahead of me, and he's looking my way, and he didn't even see me. He's just <laughs> sitting there, underneath the cedar tree. Kid went up, Jay hooked, sat underneath that cedar tree, and he's sitting there. And I don't know if he was like half asleep or if he was like dozing off, but his head was up, and I froze. And it's like anybody. He didn't have much of a rack. He had a good track, but he didn't have much of a rack. And I'm thinking, is that my buck? 
you know, and, and what I ended up doing was really carefully leaning up my gun against my leg and I reached in my pocket, I got my camera out and I just started taking pictures of him while he was sitting there. I'm standing there in blaze orange in the wide open. He's 50 <laughs> yards away and he doesn't, and he's facing me and he doesn't know I'm there. And it was just crazy. And then finally, after I got done taking my pictures, I let him know I was there and boy, did he take off. And I got a couple of pictures of him running away from me too, even. So big, bo- big body, big deer, small rack. And I just, I just didn't want to, just didn't want to fill my tag on him. So I let him go. But there again, another case, case in point. Why did he bed down there? I had every indication in me told me that that buck was not going to be anywhere within miles. You know, he was going to definitely not lay down in this wide open hardwoods. And there he was, hmm. you know, so who knows? My, my theory is I spent more tracks never catching up with the deer than not. So my theory is you go as fast as you can to keep up with the track. So you don't lose the track. Go as fast as you can. And stay as alert as you can because you can't kill deer that you don't catch up to. But sometimes it works in your favor by moving really fast because I think in that case, something had him distracted. He was maybe tired. Maybe he had his eyes closed while his head was up. And I came so fast that I actually cleared that distance that he could have saw me quicker and it actually gave me the advantage by moving fast in that case, and which does happen. So I always say move as fast as you possibly can, regardless of the situation, regardless of what the track is telling you, unless he's really found pounding the feed hard. I mean, if he's really, really working the feed hard, then yeah, maybe. But, you know, that's a rarity. Um, just keep moving fast and just keep being aware. You know, and if you jump them and you, and you don't get them, well, give them some time to calm down and keep after them, you know. But you can't kill them if you don't catch them. Yeah. You mentioned the that a buck could J-hook, you know, when he gets, like, you just go miles and miles and then J-hook and bed down. Do you find that they do that pretty often, that they'll do a little J-hook and watch their back trail? Yeah. Yeah. They almost always. To some degree or another, they they always make some kind of a little swoop. I think I think what's happening there is, especially like up north, there's so many predators and so forth. I think they know they're leaving a scent trail wherever they walk. And I think what they do is they walk past where they want to bed down and then they, they come around and then they lay down and then they watch the direction they came from. Now, if a predator comes along, he's following their scent trail. So he walks right by them on that scent trail. And while they're, while that predator is making that J hook to follow the scent to them, they're already gone. Because they can just sit there and watch that predator walk right by, and then they just scoot out. You know, and I think that's why they jayhawk. I think they lay a, lay a scent trail down, and then they watch that. They watch that scent trail, and if that way, if anything's following them, they see it. So when you see a deer, when you're finally, when you finally arrived at where he's bedded down at, is it almost always that you see him and he's facing your direction? Yeah, they always J hook and they always look back on their trail. Yeah. I've never I I can't recall them J hooking and then laying looking the other way. Yeah. 
do you usually get a shot opportunity when they're when they're still kind of eyeing you up, or is it more more common that you'll be you know moving and you'll you'll catch movement because that deer's getting up and he's starting to get out of the way, and that's when your shot opportunity is going to be. Most often, I don't see them until they move because they just blend in that well. They, there's always there's always time from the time they see you to the time that they calculate in their mind what they want to do about it. And then they make that move. And there's, that's always, I would say probably one to two or maybe, maybe longer, not much longer than that. One to two seconds that they, they'll stand up and they'll assess the situation and then they blow out. Um, and that's the one or two seconds that if you are really sharp with your eyes or whatever you can catch them standing and get a shot at them but most often i i catch them when they've already made their mind up that they want to move and then when they move then i catch the movement sure so most of the time i'm i'm catching the running but um as long as you're bringing that point up couple i want to make a couple points about about that situation if you're tracking a buck and you come up on a bed i don't care if it looks like if that bed has been is eight hours old already or, or whatever. If it's, if it seems like it's been a long time since he's been in there, when you come up on a bed, you go on absolute red alert and you keep your head on a swivel. You keep watching and you keep that gun ready because so many times I've seen where these bucks will lay down like that. And then they lay there for two hours or whatever. They get up, they stretch, they go poop or pee or whatever. They nibble on a little brush and then they lay down again. And then they'll lay there for an hour and then they get up, and they stretch and they do the same thing again and, and they'll move over another 20 yards and they'll lay down again. And so, so a lot of times when I see a buck bed, I find two or three beds from that same buck right there. And sometimes he's in one of them yet. So when you come across the bed, go on red alert because he might be really close to you in another bed, just 30, 40 yards over. And I've seen that too many times. It's, it's a pattern that happens a lot. So whenever I come across an empty bed now, I get all fired up. You know, it's like I'm ready for something to happen because I've had it happen so many times that they're still there. Hmm. Cute story. I tracked, one, I tracked one in central Wisconsin here. And uh, it was a heck of a track job because those had everything pounded, pounded down and I sorted them out of the whole mess. I caught him where he got on the edge of the swamp and he went down that swamp for about a half a mile. And then he laid down on a point on the edge of the swamp. And I got up to him. It was muzzleloader season. And I got up to him there, and, and I'm looking at the bed, and it was a dandy bed. You know, I laid my muzzleloader in the bed, and I took a picture of it, and I'm goofing around there, you know, taking pictures of his bed and my gun laying in it and stuff or whatever. Put my camera away, get my muzzleloader back in my hand again and everything. And I walk about another 10, 10 yards or so, and he blows up out of the other bed he was in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting there taking pictures and walking around there a little bit or whatever. And he's just, he was only like 40, 50 yards away laying in another bed. And it was crazy because I don't know. With a muzzleloader, I get one shot. He took off across the marshes there. And, and I saw him real well for a long time. But for the life of me, I just couldn't get the bead on him. And I only get one shot. So I wanted to make sure, you know, when I pulled the trigger, I was on him, you know. And I just couldn't get, and I never even shot one. And it was a nice, it wasn't a monster, but it was a nice eight pointer. And for that area, actually, that was a really good buck for that area. And I wanted to get him, you know, but I just never even squeezed off a shot. (laughs) 
But there's you know a case of that happening. I've seen that happen so many times. One of the biggest bucks I chased up in in uh, northern Wisconsin did that to me. It was a bed. He got up and he went over about ten yards and he laid down again. And then the, he got back up again and he walked right back where he came, right through the other bed. And he circled around. And he went back in the brush a little further away, probably thirty yards away. So I went to one bed. I went to the next bed. I came back to the first bed again. And then as I started walking out of that first bed, following where he went back into the brush a little bit, he took off out of there and he just mowed down brush to get out of there. He was, he wanted to get away from me so bad that he had the biggest track of the, uh, the biggest buck track I've ever tracked in Northern Wisconsin. And the bed was absolutely huge. He had to be a slob. He had, that deer had to weigh 240, 250 easy. Um, dressed it was a monster and it was getting late in the day and i thought well i'm just i'll come back and, and get on him tomorrow instead of trying to chase him now i'll just let him cool down overnight you know whatever and i'll just pick him up tomorrow and maybe i'll get a shot at him so i stopped at the local watering hole to have a few drinks and see what the heck the guys were anybody shooting any deer or what the pictures were on the buckboard or whatever and some guy comes walking in and he says it's snowing out, and my heart just sank. It's like, oh, there goes my buck track. It's getting covered by <laughs> snow now. Uh, that was a bummer. I, I chased him for a few years. I never did get him. I never. I knew. I knew right where his home core area was. I knew where he hung out all the time. I knew right where he came across the road all the time. But then all of a sudden, one year he just disappeared. So either somebody shot him, or or he got killed by the wolves, or died, or whatever. You know, one way or another, he wasn't around anymore. But that was another example of that, of that situation where I run across an empty bed only to find a second empty bed, only to know, didn't find out that that buck was right there yet. Yeah, it's definitely something that I'll, I'll start to key in on a little bit if I, if I happen to be, because a lot of times when I'm moving through an area, you know, especially if it's, let's say it's like a dry ground scenario or maybe it's still archery season or whatever, I'm usually not moving too fast. And, you know, if there's like a little bit of like fresh snow on the ground, those beds are pretty obvious. And there's been times when you're walking along and we, we do find a bed that was, you know, recent, but it's, it's still during the day. So it's like, okay, either we jump this deer out of its bed or perhaps in that scenario, if we were being, you know, slow and quiet or, or whatnot, he might just be bedded down a little bit further up the, up ahead. Yeah, well, you got to watch for it because that's a that's a huge thing, and, and nobody ever talks about that. But I've seen it so many times, and and as long as we're on that subject, I want to take that one more step further. You you play out the same scenario now. You you walk up and you jump a buck out of a bed, okay, and you don't get a shot at him. You might hear him, you might see him, or whatever. But either whatever way, he blew out of his bed, and you know it, and you were right there when he did, okay. Now, if he didn't see you or smell you, the first thing you want to do is keep moving forward up to the bed and go another 20, 30 yards or whatever, quickly and quietly as you can with your eyes really watching. Because if they don't smell you or see you, and if they only heard you and you jumped them up, there's a high likelihood that buck is going to run another 40, 50, 60 yards and he's going to hook around and he's going to stop and he's going to stand there and he's going to look to see what just scared him up. And I've killed two bucks tracking doing that by moving forward past where I jumped him from another, you know, 20, 30, 40 yards or whatever. 
only to have him standing there look back at me yet. Hmm. If he smells you, if the wind is in his favor, he's gone. He doesn't, he, he doesn't have to stand there to see what you are. He already knows. You know, if he saw you, he doesn't have to stand there and figure it out because he already knows. But if he only heard you and you pushed him out of that bed, you got to be, you got to move forward a little bit further yet, and you have to watch. Because they do that, they'll run up so far, and then they stop, and they want to, they want to see what it was that what just jagged them out. Because maybe it was another deer, and they don't have to run away. Right, right. You know, they just clear the area to get, you know, to get a little safety, a little distance, and then they stand there and watch to see what happens. You know, that's another thing you don't hear from trackers that talk about that. But that's, I've killed two deer that way already. Jumping them out of their bed and having them then just advancing forward and and uh, have them standing there looking to see what, what I was, trying to figure out what I was. Yeah, I've, I've definitely double bumped my fair share of deer over the years where I go and, and jump a deer and, you know, I probably heard it and I didn't see it. So the deer probably didn't see me either. And I go and investigate the bed, learn what I can learn or whatever, and just kind of assume that the deer's, you know, hundreds of yards away by then. And you take three more steps and it jumps again. It was like just there the whole time watching for you. I've had that happen quite a bit. Either that or snort like crazy at you from 100 yards away. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so they didn't go that far. They're, you know, if you think about it, how many times have you done that? Jump the deer and then you, you walk just a little ways further and all of a sudden they're snorting at you. You know, so they don't go very far. They want to they identify what you are or whatever before they decide to you know, just go running helter-skelter through the woods. Yeah. And it makes total sense. They don't want to waste a whole bunch of energy off something that, like you said, might just be another deer. All right. All right. On the topic of, you know, what you do kind of in that moment of truth when you're tracking and you have that short window... Is there a, a certain way that you have your gun set up, a certain way that the sights are, are rigged, you know, a certain caliber of bullet, you know, just overall setup, what have you found to that you like the best? Um, the first thing is uh, take your gun, close your eyes, and then throw it up to your shoulder with your eyes closed. And then once you have a shoulder, just like you're going to shoot the gun, then open your eyes and see if you're looking where the sights are. If you're not looking, if, you're, if your eye isn't lining down the sights, you need to think about getting a different gun that fits you so that when you bring that gun up, you're already, look, you're already lining up the sights, okay? Because I don't know what the technical terms for the firearms, the way they're made, but every stock is made different, and it fits your shoulder different. The length away from you, you know, the height that it sits or that it kicks down or whatever. And if, if you can't, if you're, if you don't naturally bring it up and line up the sights, that's probably not a good gun for you for that because you have to shoot quick. So that's the first thing that you want to look at. Um, second thing you can do is take the damn sling off your gun. And anybody that's listening to this, I, I challenge them to try this. Go put your sling on your gun. Let the sling hang, pull the sling, pull the gun up, and try to hold it on a target and watch what happens. Your sling, your sling will swing back and forth. And honest to God, if you're watching, it'll pull your it'll pull that barrel back and forth with each swing. And 
that makes a lot of difference. And I learned that I learned that practicing quick shooting at the at the rifle range. It's like, wow, my sling is is pulling my gun. When I pull it up, my sling is swinging back and forth. So now I don't carry a sling anymore. If I I take a lightweight sling sometimes and I put it in my in my backpack, my pouch that I have in my jacket, built in my jacket, for when I get done hunting. And I, if I have to walk down the road or whatever, I'll just throw that sling on and I'll put it over my shoulder then for easy walking on the way out. But when I'm hunting, I always have the gun in my hand. Um, I'm always almost always ready to shoot. I mean, I've got it you know, in a position where I, I, it can come right up. Um, if you have it slung, first of all, if you're trying to go through brush and you got it on a sling, it's pretty hard to do. Second of all, it takes a lot of time to bring it off of your shoulder with the sling and, and line up to make your shot. Yeah. You know, so get the sling off and carry that gun ready. Um, and the third thing is, um, practice fast shooting. Um, there's nothing like walk through the woods, if, if a bird flies overhead, a crow or a raven or something, pull the gun up and try to get on them as quick as you can. If you see a bird in the, in the woods, pull up on them and try to get on them as quick as If there's a chipmunk running, practice all day long. You're, you're not doing anything anyway but following a track. You know, get used to shouldering that gun quick and getting used to getting on target as quick as possible. I really shoot my deer rifle like a shotgun. I basically throw it up to my shoulder and I look at my, my look at my front bead only and I put it on the deer when it's running. I don't even remember putting my bead in the V on my backside. I just put the gun up. I assume that it's going to be in the V because it fits me right. And I just, I point the bead at the deer and shoot at them. You don't have a whole lot of time. So, you know, if you're going to get shots off, um, and if you're going to wait for that opportunity where he's standing there and, and looking back at you, well, then you're not going to have many opportunities tracking deer. Not unless you can get to a, such a remote area that they don't even know what human beings are and they're going to stand there and try to figure you out for a while, you know. Um, but most places I hunt the deer are very familiar with people and they know that when they see a person, they better run. Right. So that's, I guess... You know, and, and what caliber you use, it doesn't matter. What If, if you're going to use a, a, a peep sight, if that works for you, use it. Iron sights, if that works, use it. If, you, if you're really good with a scope, use it. You know, whatever you can shoot really well with um, and quickly, then use it. And I think each person has a little bit different, you know. For me, it's iron sights. I, I can just, I'm so much faster with iron sights than I am with a scope. Yeah, definitely. I think I'm, I'm also faster with, you know, open sights, at least in terms of like a shotgun when you're, you know, shooting clay pigeons or whatnot for turkey hunting, I switched to a red dot and I've liked that just because it keeps your sight picture a little bit more open. Whereas like with the bead or the iron sights, you know, the top half, everything above the bead you can see, but then the beads kind of burying everything else. Whereas with the red dot, you can still see everything. I wonder if that might not work for right. for that type of hunt too, because they make them now where the, their solar power, the batteries last, you know, tens of thousands of hours. It might not be a might not be a terrible option. No, there's a lot of guys that like the red dot scopes for that. Yeah, you throw it up, you put the red dot on the deer and shoot. Yeah, you know, I mean, I've thought about it, but I just I just can't get it through my head to to look through that scope. You know, I I've got I've got the same gun. Um, I got 30 at six pump, uh, since a 7,600 
and I've had that gun for, well, since I was probably 16 years old. So that's, I don't know, that's what, 40 years, 42 years, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went out, I got the same gun carbine model. And my other, my long barreled one's got, uh, the standard barrel has got a scope on it and it's got see-through sights. So it's got the scope on the, you know, they got the rings where I can see through yet and still see my iron sights, which keeps my scope jacked up a little bit, which, which can make it tough for running shooting because that scope is elevated. Um, but my other gun, I'm just running just iron sights on it, and uh, and it's a carbine model, and I love that. It, you won't believe how much faster you can pull that little carbine gun up and shoot it. Huh. The one point you made about the 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 stock fitting you right. I mean, obviously, like the the length yep. of pull and the length of the stock. I mean, that just has to be right. But one thing I found that. Um, and maybe helpful for the listeners too. Uh, when I was especially trying to get my shotgun with a scope to fit right, and I had to get you know the scope and the the right set of rings. By the time everything was all said and done, there was like an enormous gap where I felt like my head was floating way above the stock in order to actually look through the scope comfortably. And I ended up just buying a kit that has uh, it came with like a few different foam pads and basically just a big sleeve that is elastic and fits over the stock and you can just customize whatever, you know, thickness riser essentially to, to add on to the stock and you can just customize it to just like what you said earlier, you drop your head down on the gun with your eyes closed, you open up your eyes and you're looking right down the scope. And and that definitely made yeah. what would have been uh, an inopportune or like a not ideal gun fit be very, you know, quite usable. Right. And if it's not lining up, you're going to have a tough time because if you have to, if you have to shoulder the gun and then line the sights up as the deer is running away from you, I'm telling you, it's thousand one and he's gone. You know, so by the time you do that, there's not much time left. There's one other thing too um, that you might want to be aware of. I have it on my on my muzzle loader and I don't like it at all and I and I still haven't decided what I want to do with that. But my muzzle loader has got a soft rubber butt plate on there for shock, you know, so you don't, your shoulder don't take the shock, mm-hmm. but that hooks on my clothing. When, oh. I, when I bring that gun up, when, especially you know, if you have heavier clothes on or whatever, you, you bring that up and that, that soft rubber catches and it drags on your clothing. Whereas my 30 out sixes have a hard plastic butt plate. It just slides. It, there's no, there's nothing there to hold it back, you know, of course, your shoulder takes the brunt of it, but, um, and I don't really know what I can do with that gun, but I, I don't like that scenario. And, and again, you know, I mean, if, if, if you bring your gun up and it drags on the way through, you know, and you're trying to force it up through your clothes like that, again, you're losing precious time. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Practice, practice drawing, practice drawing, you know, when you're in the woods, you're not doing anything anyway. Just keep practice drawing on things. Look at it, you know, look at a knot on a tree and put the gun on it. You know, look at a, a bird flying, put the gun on it. You know, it, just pick things out at random and just keep throwing that gun up, keep throwing that gun up, keep throwing that gun up. And believe it or not, you'll get as fast with your gun by doing that as you would have if you actually pulled the trigger. You, you're training your body to line your sights up on a target. And when the moment of truth comes, if you've done that, 
100, 200, 300 times, your body just wants to put the gun, it wants to line you up on the target, wherever your eye is looking. It's like shooting a bull without sights on it. Your body gets used to, when you just, you look at your target with your eye and you pull that recurve bow back and you let that arrow go, that arrow goes where your eye is looking because your body has learned that. All the muscles, all the muscles have learned that where my eye is looking, that's, you know, that's where I have to be to be, to make it go there. And it just does it all on its own. So if you keep practicing that quick draw, you will be fast. Yeah, yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And I'm even thinking back to, you know, the few times a summer that I usually go and shoot clay pigeons. I'm kind of cheating the system a little bit because as I think about it, when I'm usually ready to yell pull, I've already got the gun pretty much shouldered. And I know where the, you know, where the pigeons are going to be. It'd probably be better of a training exercise, you know, just to have that thing kind of at the ready. And then, you know, once the, the clay pigeons come out, then you, you know, shoulder the gun and, and actually work through that whole motion. And obviously that might not be the same gun that I'd be, you know, deer hunting with, but just to kind of get used to, again, that style in a, a scenario that's allows you to shoot at stuff too. And then, but, but definitely just being able to go through the woods and, and just practicing as you go, that has to just help a ton, you know, with the, you brought the recurve reference, stumping is pretty popular where, you know, I got a, usually an arrow or two in my quiver that would just have like a blunt on it instead of a broadhead. And, you know, I would yep. just practice shooting, shooting at, you know, a stump or, you know, a whatever, you know, mushroom, just, just pick something and, and shoot at it just to, to get that, uh, you know, real world practice and makes a big difference. Right. And your body is an amazing tool. And again, we don't rely on it as much as we should. I, when, when you shoot pool, I, I used to be quite a pool shooter in my day. I, I, I don't go out to the bars anymore or whatever. Don't shoot league anymore. But, you know, in my day, I was pretty darn good. And it's amazing how you can just lean over the pool table and just look at that cue ball and look at the other ball and just know exactly where you got to hit it to make it go in, you know? And how that all lines up, just you just look at it and you just know. You just know where you got to be and your body just does it, you know. Um, and that's the same with this quick instinctive shooting. That's, that's what you have to, you, you can train your body to do that. Okay, and here's where we're going to end the podcast for the first part. And in part two, we're going to talk about some of the things Todd has observed and has been trying to do since diving back into bow hunting again a little bit more recently to supplement all of his years of gun hunting. It's interesting to see how some of the skill sets he's picked up over the years translate so fluently. He was able to tag a nice buck on public land during his first season back in the game last year. We talk about how trail cameras can be an excellent tool for tracking patterns year over year on specific bucks, how you can pick a nearly guaranteed rut spot. I think he made the comment at one point that uh, he'd rather have some of the spots he's found over hunting in Iowa. So he'll talk about why and give some examples for that. And also just why there's not much of a substitute at all for putting time in the woods when it comes to really learning an area. And then we touch on this at the end of the second part a little bit, but just to give you guys a heads up, you can find more of Todd's information on his Facebook group, Misty River Trackers, and he also has a YouTube page, Misty River Trackers, that you can check out as well. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes, and if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman, And with that, thanks for listening.